I'm feeling anxious. What am I actually anxious about? Now that I'm standing here, I'm not sure this is going to work. Maybe I should just have said that I couldn't do this podcast anymore. You're anxious, so you're defaulting to trying to visualise the finished product before you've even begun. Don't. One step at a time. What's that Rebecca Solnit quote I always think about? Um, I suspect the mind, like the feet, works at about three miles an hour. So that's the beauty of walking to make work, instead of doing it sitting in an art studio. There's only one way to start. To put one foot in front of the other. So let's go for a walk. This was the kind of thing that was my soundtrack to university. Maybe we could ask questions about what it means, if anything, that people so far removed from, and largely ignorant of, the context within which this music was originally created, were listening to it, and drawing so heavily from elements of its cultural context and style. But that's not the thought that dominates as I stare at this, the first house I ever lived in at university. Oh, hold up, I like this bit. I got a worldwide family all over the earth And they worry about them all for whatever it's worth Anyway... What was I chatting about? The first house I lived in... Oh yeah, okay. What I notice is that I have become totally naturalised to this Victorian, double bay windowed, terraced landscape. But if I really think back 20 years, I remember thinking that this was nothing like anything I'd ever lived in before. It was completely foreign. What does this say about how I've changed? Should I feel like I've betrayed my origins? Or should I be proud at how far I've transcended my origins? Perhaps both can exist at the same time. Before you moved in here, do you remember how excited you were by the simple fact that you would have stairs? But the elapsed time won't let me connect with that exact feeling of why stairs excited me so. Diana grew up in my flats, and I remember she once talked about the same feeling. Um, oh hang on, maybe I should just ask her. Hey, Di, why are we so excited about stairs? Because we never had them. Like, that was like, you know, the next step up, isn't it? I think it's maybe like all the TV programmes that maybe you watched as you were growing up. They all had big houses and they all had... No, nobody lived in flats, or whatever you saw on TV, nobody lived in flats. You think about Home Alone and things, you all had like massive houses, didn't they? With stairs. And so, you know, you always lived on one floor, but now you've got two floors to go to. <laughs> it's really sad, isn't it? The truth is that you don't feel you share a history with most people you surround yourself by these days, isn't it? To most I might sound like I kind of belong. Oh, hang on a sec. Hey, Rowan, can we get some house party ambience, please? Yeah, nice. Maybe a faint tune in the background? Cool, cool. No, 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 that's great. That's great. Ah, here I am chilling back at uni. This is all and yet none of the house parties I went to. Remember, that's the thing with nostalgia. It's not located in one place, but in many fragments of places held together by imagination to form a collection which exceeds its individual moments. Ungraspable. 
That's paraphrasing Edward Casey. Hang on, actually, I better make a note to reread him and check I got that right. Anyway, excuse me, but this girl's chatting to me, yeah, and I'm being a bit rude, so just a second. Oh my god! I thought I assumed you went to a private school because you just sound so normal. Oh yeah, that's funny, but um, yeah, no, just just a state school. Well, it was a Catholic state school because my parents are Portuguese and my mum's like uber Catholic, but yeah, y- yeah, you know. Oh yeah, because I was going to ask, where are you from? Oh uh, yeah, um, London. Yeah, of course. <laughs> No, I mean, where are you really from? At a young age, I had to become contemplative about what having a collective identity means. The insider-outsider feeling has never left me. And the insider-outsider is the best thing an artist can be, because you can relate to either side intimately, but you also have a cognitive distance from both. Split identities are not weakness, they are richness. I constantly mull over Alif Shafak's words. I was always quite proud that I had experience of another culture, wore bilingual as a badge of honour, but I guess in my recent adult years I've been wondering what exactly lies behind the where are you really from question, if anything. You've been daydreaming and walking too slowly. If you don't hurry up you're never going to connect the 20 years between my university house and my current house. Ricardo Van. That woman looks like Sam from Halls. I wonder whatever happened to her and to Weird James. Key figures in your first term at uni, they've become wrapped up with the mythical status of that time. If I really wanted to, I could track them down, but I think they are best left untouched by time. Never meet your heroes, I guess, or the mythical people from your past. Ah. Oh. This is a day of soft light and long shadows. A day perfect for contemplation, I guess. In whose peaceful and still air, it's easy to sink softly into into a rose-tinted nostalgia. But you think overall you felt quite lonely in that house. After the excitement of first year and its, its open, free association friendship groups, After that, things started to settle into established patterns and and perhaps I struggled to find my place in a a middle-class environment that played by different rules than than the ones I'd grown up with. You found your housemates' friendship groups cliquey and you never felt comfortable with them. And then you remember your housemates were reluctant to mix with your various friendship groups. Maybe... Maybe due to their own insecurities, which, which you didn't really appreciate at the time. Whatever the reasons, it forced you out on your own and may have fixed in you a view of the world through a, a solitary lens which your only child and single parent upbringing had predisposed me to. Maybe it also made you a connector, to borrow Gladwell's term, which is a good thing. Why other yourself, though, by bringing class into it? Maybe everybody was struggling in their own way. Hmm. The past is as alive as the present, remember? And you have to be open to the fact that I might be reworking it to fit my current thinking. You need to step outside yourself. Stop being so self-absorbed. I wonder what some of the others I met back in my first year 
would remember and say about those early uni days? I mean, the background, I suppose, is I went to boarding school from the age of six to 18. Um, and so, uh, you know, coming to university was this sort of first time, really, that I'd had kind of proper sort of freedom, I suppose. I think, you know, obviously it wasn't that different from what I've been used to from the age of, uh, you know, age of quite a young age. But, um, you know, so I guess, yes, I was familiar with that whole sort of concept of being in an institution. So, yeah, it definitely wasn't a shock to the system in that sense. Um, you know, I guess the, the major adjustment was just how much more freedom I had relative to, you know, what had sort of gone on before. And I suppose there was that feeling of pretty quickly I sort of felt like I'd found my group of people. So I didn't really have, and I've spoken to people who've kind of had that experience of going up to uni where they feel quite lost, I suppose, and they just haven't kind of found their tribe. Yeah, we were told at university, this is what I was told, the freshest week would be the best week of your life. You'd go there and meet loads of new people. And Bristol University was going somewhere where everybody knew each other already. And a lot of them didn't actually really want to meet anyone else. (laughs) You're like 13 or younger and you go into like a kind of boarding school environment where, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of um, age hierarchies as well. And it's, you know, it's kind of unpleasant. You basically, um, you very quickly figure out what you need to do to uh, survive, to uh, get friends and do, do those kind of things. And they may not be positive things that you have to do, but they are what you have to do and everyone does them and you just figure it out. And so in that sense, you know, there's a bit of that that, yeah, it does carry over. You know, I always was, you know, of the opinion that I didn't quite uh, have a rightful place in that space as well, um, which is probably... You know, it was probably a good thing. Um, when I think about it, you know, it, it was a good thing because it meant that I had to sort of do other things. But I think I was also quite interested in having my own sense of identity. But I did also find, I mean, you know, the, the school I went to was a little bit different. But actually, you know, you, you're living in an environment which is, if you look back at it now, I mean, you know, there was quite a lot of racism and those kind of things, which were very everyday, very casual. And, um, you know, I was uh, being, literally being uh, Mediterranean looking, not even sounding or with a name. You know, I was definitely not um, uh, English in that sense. And so there's some kind of exclusion anyway. But, um, but again, that was probably a good thing. I mean, my, like, overriding impression was it was just such a culture shock. But I remember even in, like, the first week being with people who'd be like, oh, that thingy over there, I went to school with them, or oh, that thingy over there, I met them when I was travelling. And the people that had gone to private school, I think, had a huge social advantage in terms of more numbers from their schools went to Bristol, and they'd all gone travelling before and met up in the same places (laughs) I remember being in the bar on the first night and it was like exactly like that it was people catching up from their gap years and I just thought I'd you know gone straight from school and I just remember thinking this is a different world but I did a um Sutton Trust like summer placement at Bristol the summer before and it was for kids who 
were from low socioeconomic backgrounds and whose parents, like who'd be the first in their family to go to university. It grouped like 50 stateful kids together for a week and you had a great time and you got really drunk and it was really fun. And I just naively thought it would be more of a mix of people and more like that. But then I turned up in this like weird gap year reunion and didn't, I mean, until I met you, I wouldn't have met anyone else from a similar background to me. I do remember, actually, I don't remember the exact meeting of you, but I remember when I met you feeling like relieved that there was someone else that would just get that that wasn't normal. Cool. That is a random section of old stone wall to be in this park. I wonder what his story is. Maybe I'll get up my phone and look it up. No, no. I always hunt for facts, and they prevent me from having to engage emotionally with the present. Remember Andrew Grieg and his words. Sometimes the more you know, the less you see. What you encounter is your knowledge, not the thing itself. So just accept the wall and picture the field that it might have enclosed. The sheep scuttling away from you as you clamber over the stile. The smell of manure, looking at the clouds in the distance and wondering whether they are bringing rain. The white clouds racing across the sky as the wind blows in your face. The clear blue sky, the smell of sweaty hands, the sound of tinkling yap bells and the distant roar of gust over peak as you pant for air. It's hard to breathe at this altitude and you've still got 2,000 meters to climb before you're over Frong La. Focus on the roaring river, the zip wire crossing it. Bags over first to test for weight. I got to South America on my first jumbo jet. Remember the feeling of excitement at being unleashed out into the world. I wonder if they'll serve the meal soon. I really need the loo, but I'm too British to wake up this guy next to me. In South America, you can overcome all those silly things and metamorphose into the person you have been feeding yourself to be. Don't go to the loo. Stare out the window at that endless blue. I can just make out the waves from here. Madeira has one of the most dangerous airports in the world. Soon we'll be climbing into the hills amongst the smell of pine and eucalyptus. If you look really hard, maybe I can see my family waiting for us at the terminal balcony or waving goodbye. Tears of farewell. See you in three years or never again. Summer over, back home, new school term. Falling leaves, clocks go back. If I focus really hard on the warmth of the sun as it lights up the wall and the grass, maybe I can flip the seasons and deceive myself into the optimism of spring going into summer. I wonder if other people think that sometimes. The rest of the park is dotted with people in the telltale hunt smartphone position. I think it's time to keep moving. Round this corner and now the houses are lush. I feel immediately ostracised. You went to uni here. You lived in one of these houses. It was like a tease. Sample for a little while what you'll never be able to afford. There seems to be no way out. Housing is all anyone I know ever talks about. In rich countries, and especially in the English-speaking world, housing is too expensive, damaging the economy and poisoning politics. That's what The Economist said in January. It hangs over everything, and people at work talked endlessly about it. We were in the same boat. 
If everyone is in the same boat, then surely we can find a solution. And then out of nowhere, it's a three-bedroom house in Easton. And you're like, what? And it's... Yeah, I got left some money by my gran. And my parents are giving me some money to renovate the house. And it's like, I thought we were in this together, bruv. But the truth is, we never were. It hangs over everyone and everything. But this is a middle-class perspective, isn't it? This is only a tiny part of the population, is it? I don't know. But if to succeed, if to be successful is to be a property owner, how can everyone do that? The other day, The Guardian pretty much said... The Institute for Fiscal Studies said wealth passed down from one generation to the next was fast becoming the most important determinant of how well-off people will become. But how can people without generational wealth stand a chance in this game? If houses make more money than people and we continue to support the structures that make house prices price houses, Peter Piper picked the policy that props up the market, how can anyone ever catch up through working hard? And that's what we were told, wasn't it? Work hard. But I can't see why some people shout bullshit. Some of some of my peers have may have socially mobilised across an education gap. It's incredible what they've achieved given where they came from. But does it matter? Because the wealth gap is like, sorry mate, you're not coming in. No matter how hard you work and... What are people going to do now house prices are so expensive? Suze, aka Dr Susie Steed, now has a PhD in economics and is an expert in this kind of stuff. I want to ask her. I personally think that they have to fall and I think um, that politicians should be doing that. I think that's what their focus should be on, reducing house prices. I'm quite interested in whether we can start talking about house prices falling and whether politicians could actually put that in a manifesto and people would vote for that. And of course, like, and like you might say, oh, but anyone that owns a home won't vote for that. But I own a flat and I would totally vote for a politician that had the guts to say they were going to try and make house prices fall in a, in a controlled way, not tank the entire economy, which they will if they just crash. But um, this is the, the strange paradox of, like, democracy is everybody votes in their interest, not what's best for, not, not, not what's actually best. All of our cultural identity is tied up with things like, well, there's a few things we tie up with, but housing is one, and you're in your job, what you do for a living is another. And if, at the moment, there aren't, young people aren't able to get jobs or houses, um, what, that just doesn't seem... But, you know, it just not, it's not possible to continue the social contract that we have if if all the things that we ascribe power and value to are not available to young people right now. And also, I just think the high rents are so damaging for people that are paying so much of their salary in rents. But, yeah, I think where rents just need to fall and we should just start renegotiating rent contracts. And, and that would actually make house prices fall if landlords weren't getting as much in rents. And it would be, I think it would be reasonably, I think it would be quite um, easy, actually. It would just need some political will to do it. I think the first stage is talking about it. That's always the first stage. Are there any more beers in the fridge? Uh, wear your own beers, you tight ass. Hey, you're right. This is our lounge from when we were at uni. It's all right, isn't it? Fireplace, period features. But that's not important now. I'd forgotten how ranked that sofa was, though. Anyway, listen up. Here it comes. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to get trapped in that job thing. No way. I'll probably do a ski season, yeah. then just, you know, snowboard half the year, work the rest, yeah, get some cool. money for the next year. 
you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't need anything more than that. It's too big a world out there, man. It's you know? big. It's big. There's, there's too much to see. I'm not going to be like my parents, man. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. I'm not going to get trapped to, like, living in the suburbs and commuting and all of that. No. Not for me. I'm going to I'm gonna find a new way. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. cool. Whatever happened to that? I feel like the biggest fool for not realising it was never true. Sorry, sorry, my fault. You need to look where you are going. This road leads to uni, so don't carry on. You know the place that exists in your memory is not the place that exists down that road. If you go down that hill, will what you remember be your memory, or will it be today? Like photography, Maybe reality is actually in the service of forgetting, not remembering. I cannot see Kensington Gardens as I saw it as a child, because I saw it only two days ago, on a chill afternoon, all the cherry trees lurid in the cold yellow light of a hailstorm. I would set foot in them with the same uneasiness that one feels when entering an attic unvisited for years. Let's turn this corner here instead. This road is very leafy. I can hear the birds in the trees. I'm filled with a feeling of calm. The houses are getting bigger and no doubt expensive. Why can't all areas be like this? I've just finished reading John Borton's Municipal Dreams, so my thoughts turn to council housing. Can it not feel as organic and as verdant as this? I'm conflicted. By feeling a great deal of calm in such an aesthetically pleasing area, I feel I am somehow, I don't know, betraying my belief that all types of housing should be available for all, irrespective of their means. I feel as if, I guess, I'm admitting that public housing will always be inferior to private, and being angry that that is the case. Is there any way back to the ideals of Bevan from the present stigmatisation that social housing finds itself tarred with today? I want to talk to John. We've been in an era really certainly since the 1970s when a, a lot of public housing, council housing, uh, was stigmatised, it was misrepresented and, and maligned um, in, the, in the media and that became the kind of common sense view, the common, uh, the widespread perception of, of the reality of council housing, defined really by a few uh, what were usually called problem estates, sink estates, failing estates, or the kind of negative language that were used in, in in the time. My argument in the book is that, you know, these weren't so much failing estates as failed estates, i.e. that we as a society and state failed them in terms of the sort of uh, quality of life um, in economic and social terms that we uh, provided their residents. I think it's really important to recognise that that era of sort of mass public housing, multi-storey council housing, was really a fairly short-lived phenomenon. It really kind of uh, emerged in sort of mid-50s, peaked, literally peaked in terms of high-rise in a very brief period in the late 60s. Um, like if you look at the, the much longer picture of council housing uh, up into the interwar period, it was overwhelmingly what they called cottage suburbs, garden suburbs uh, at the time. 
And even if you take the post-war period, post-45 to 79, um, 64% of council housing was actually two-storied homes in suburban estates. So I think the sort of the image uh, of council housing is, is actually mistaken just in terms of its uh, a quantitative understanding, let alone a qualitative, qualitative understanding. In terms of public perception, um, what I'd say is that actually there's some very good council housing. Certainly there were mistakes made in the past, but I think currently there's some very good social housing being built. And you know, I, I'd refer, for example, to Goldsmith Street in Norwich, which won the uh, RAB uh, Sterling Prize for the best building project of 2019. Um, and it's uh, a, a beautiful estate, 100% social housing. And um, it, it, it uh, relates to new environmental standards, sustainability criteria, et cetera, et cetera. So I think if you if you move away from the kind of uh, hideous image of fail, failing estates and look at the stuff that's being built now, actually, it's some really high quality housing. And uh, uh, in, in many ways, it's really at the cutting edge, far more so than, of course, than the sort of the, the, the rabbit hutches built by speculative builders. Low-income groups. Look at God's house basking in the sun. You know, if Mum were still alive, she would be disappointed by your lapsed Catholicism. Her stoicism still makes me angry. The way she believed that if she stayed humble, no matter how others treated her, she would be rewarded in the end. If not in this world, then the next, as she used to say. But what it meant was she ended up with no control over her own life. And Catholicism has left me with a constant guilt that I'm not living my life in the right way, that anything I want must be bad. Because, you know, to want is bad. It's the devil's work. But I remember there was a genuine sense of community at church. And at Christmas, a real depth to the genuine goodwill. It really works for Tom. He takes great strength from it. That reaction of your mum's, um, I can also empathise with. I've had um, similar experiences of trusting much too much when actually a little bit of a little bit of logic would have helped, or you know, being overly humble because you know that's a trait perhaps that Jesus talks about when actually, you know, like your mum, I should have. Put myself forward a bit more. I think Christians of that era were, were quite formalistic and quite ritualistic. I've been pretty lucky in that I've, I've always had a, a relationship with God, with something you know more than myself and more than what I can see. My strength has come from, I guess, knowing that it doesn't all depend on me um, and feeling that sense of not, not that God is in charge, because that, that's too, I guess, kind of terministic, but just feeling that, that, that God's guiding hand is there. So I think that, that's given me a lot of strength. I feel that I've been able to ask God for guidance and for help on things, and, and from what I've seen in my own life, those, those prayers have been answered. So that, that's really the strength that it's given me, is, is I guess, feeling like there's, there's something larger than me, larger than human effort and ability which I can rely on. Because I've always looked at faith in relationship terms, I've always felt that, well, 
if you want something from somebody you're in relationship with, whether it's a friend, a partner, whatever, um, then you are, then you should feel free to ask them. So, yeah, I, I, I've never felt that. I mean, like, I, I guess for me as a Christian, I mean, the, the Bible says, you know, ask and you shall receive. You know, knock, knock and the door shall be opened to you. And, I, I, you know, there's a number of different ways to interpret that. Um, but ultimately, no, I, I've never, I've never felt that sense of guilt. I love the fact that the level of the pavement here is so high above the level of the road. It's funny how such a small shift can totally change the dynamics of the space. It's like a snippet of another world, the secret garden, the wardrobe into Narnia. Water is absolutely cascading out of that first floor balcony, over there onto the street below. Remember when your friend came to stay? And on her first night, she left the tap on and flooded the downstairs. In one version of this past, you remember being really stressed, having to live in a damp bare house for months, dehumidifiers constantly whirring. But other times, the whole thing didn't seem to last so long. Which is the real past? On the night itself, I remember, I remember being woken up by the sound of what I thought was rain. And then I wandered downstairs and the lights were pulsing like in, like in Stranger Things. And that's when I noticed that water was dripping from them. And then I suddenly realized what was happening. And I rushed back upstairs to wake my partner up. And she woke up our daughter and then our friend. And this was all before my son was born. It was twilight already. And it was my partner who called the fire brigade. And one truck came we waited right outside the house in the little alley and it was really cold because it was late November, remember that? But then after the fire brigade arrived, I don't remember anything else. Basically the next thing I consciously remember was Sarah running in and, and giving me Ezra <laughs> and I'd never met him before <laughs> so I was like, Hi, baby, I don't know. I remember Sarah being, like, really scared for the kids because the lights were on downstairs, and I I don't know why. They, they must have been turned on. I don't think they were supposed to be on, and there was water coming through them. And I just remember, like, so much panic in Sarah's face. And um, the kids were super chill, I remember really appreciating that reaction. <laughs> so the fire truck came. I don't remember how many fire trucks came. I think I feel like there was two, but um, no, I don't remember who called the police. I feel like it must have been you though, because I know you and Sarah well enough that Sarah would delegate that task to you. I think. I don't remember it, it being super cold, so I don't think it was winter. I think we were just standing in the doorway or like in the just outside the house rather than I don't think we were any like major amount of steps away I remember being like oh Cliff you go to sleep and I'll mop and I just was filled with um bad feelings and um tiredness and I remember it's like a really sad part of the memory 
the kids' drawings were like all wet on the wall. Memory is not an instrument for exploring the past, but it's theater. Ooh, look, a footpath I've never been down before. Go down here. These flats remind me of my childhood visits to see my family in France. Their creamy colour, the way the light is hitting them. The proportion of space left around them. Strangers linked by blood, spread out across the globe. That is the story of my family and the legacy of my parents' migration generation. Do ultramar, do estrangeiro, dos filhos de emigrantes. It's a nice surprise. The path opens out into a large, leafy, affluent square. You feel calm and content in this leafy affluence. But at the same time, I feel guilty about it. That I am, again, betraying my origins, I guess. That I cannot afford to live here and so I have to come here in, in small bits like some sort of nibbling voyeur. Guilty that I know, probably this place must have been built to someone else's disadvantage, perhaps someone suffering even. Guilty that I'm a traitor to myself, allowing myself to be spellbound by, by this mythologized Englishness, fetishizing something I spend so much time trying to pick apart. Guilty that deep down I am little more than just a fraud. Sue set up those walking tours on the undiscussed history of the City of London and the British Empire. I'm interested in what she would have to say. Yeah, like for me, I've had a huge crisis around this because of my complete ignorance about all of British history. It's a question that I would like to properly be able to dissect how much of Britishness comes from this colonial, nostalgic tea, isn't everything a big jolly adventure because I was, I, I also like kind of fetishized it. I like the way you described it because I feel that as well. Like even the fact that I wanted to go to Bristol and like I actually wanted to go to, you know, to Oxford. I was following this ideal of something which I don't quite know what it was. And then when you find out a bit more about the reality of it, um, it's it becomes difficult. But then I don't think that's where we have to get more specific. We have to understand as we go forward what bits of it need to be completely um, dissected and then ditched and what bits do we actually st but we need to leave the stuff that we can be proud of. The longing we feel for a place determines it as much as does its outward image. So what am I longing for? An Englishness that, as a child, I felt I could never achieve? I spent a New Year's in, in that house there, and yet as I stare at it, I don't feel an aching nostalgia, a saudade, as the Portuguese call it, for the past like you have on previous similar walks. Instead, I feel like a, more of a calm acceptance and an appreciation for the past. I wonder why that is. Maybe it's just my current state of mind, the fairly positive frame of mind I am in at the moment and my work's going quite well. Or does this represent a more permanent shift? 
I'd become like Virginia Woolf reflecting on having written To the Lighthouse. I wrote the book very quickly, and when it was written, I ceased to be obsessed by my mother. I no longer hear her voice. I do not see her. I suppose that I did for myself what psychoanalysts do for their patients. I expressed some very long-felt and deeply-felt emotion, and in expressing it, I explained it and laid it to rest. Walking could be a way to lay my past to rest. I hope I've laid something to rest. Leute, I think I'm going to wrap up this Zoom call. Too much screen time for me today. Okay, fair enough. Let's close with a single sentence summary of our thoughts before we go, yes? Walter? Hmm. He who has begun to open the fan of memory never comes to the end of its segments. That's what I like about you, Walter. You're always so descriptive. Max, you're next. Hmm. It seems to me that one could well end one's life simply through thinking and retreating into one's mind. Hmm. Yes, very true. And you, Friedrich, what does the big serious philosopher have to say on the matter? Beyond a certain point, the past has to be forgotten if it's not to become the grave digger of the present. At the same time, two of my friends lived in that house there. But they did languages and must have been on their year abroad that year, so that can't be. I must be time slicing, and yet I can completely visualize walking from one house to the other. I was aware back then that no one in the world I came from could serve as a role model for the world I was moving into. And I remember when visiting my friends, looking to them and wondering if they represented the kind of person I should be aiming for. Privately educated, confident, seemingly negotiating social dynamics of ease. But this was of course just my view from the outside. And as I sit here on this bench in the autumn sun, I want to know what was going on in their heads back then. You know, I've always felt... Um... I've always tried to sort of back myself and be quite confident in um, my approach to things, like just just to trust my own instinct always and not really second-guess myself. And I think I used to do that then. I mean, I used to do that the whole time. But um, um, so I never... I, I think by then I was very into doing that, but I probably wasn't actually achieving very much. Not achieving, but um, going very far on certain things. So it was quite easy. You know, uni, I could kind of sort of reinvent myself as, I guess, this, I don't know, whatever sort of character. And so I, I guess I was probably playing a bit of a, a part at university, you know, sort of big personality. And, I, you know, I really enjoyed playing that character. It was really fun. What's been interesting for me is like looking back at that time and, you know, having subsequently had like a lot of therapy about loads of different kind of issues sort of realizing that that person I was at university is just, you know, was a bit of a, was only one very small facet of the kind of, you know, without wanting to sound too grandiose, like what the other bits of me that I've sort of discovered since that are much, uh, probably much less sort of, um, 
you know, much less kind of uh, exuberant, much more, you know, basically found, you know, filled with much more kind of anxiety and depression and, you know, maybe more negative emotions than I kind of realised were possible at university. So I sort of look back at that, you know, person I was at uni and think, God, that was, you know, just really blissfully kind of unaware and naive and life was kind of pretty straightforward then. And I guess since leaving uni, I've been on a bit more of a journey to kind of, you know, understand more about myself, understand where my depression comes from. And yeah, see myself as, you know, a probably a more complicated, more um, damaged, more kind of, um, you know, less straightforward kind of person than I was, you know, when you were sort of seeing me in that house at university. If I could live anywhere in this city, it would be here on this steep hill neighbourhood. I want to live here, but I think if I want it, it must be bad. The easy option. It's the devil tempting me again. You see, you just can't shake that Catholic guilt. Gloria in excelsis Deo, et in terra pax hominibus bonae voluntatis. The houses and the streets respecting the geography of the landscape instead of eschewing it. Housing on different tiers. It reminds me of my parents' island homeland. And I wonder if everything I like is based on how closely it reminds me of and emotionally resonates with the memories I have from childhood visits to that volcanic outpost of the silence, of the smell of the pine trees, the noise of a motorbike engine gently reverberating off the mountainsides. Visits which, I have long suspected, have determined how I view every place I have ever visited since. Can these dispositions set in childhood be fully transcended? In nomine Patris et Fili et Spiritus Santi, Amen. The Docks, one of Britain's post-industrial battlegrounds. In a way, I guess they are a handy metaphor. A Victorian past the nation is either trying to accept or transcend via cafes, those apartments shaped like cruise ships and paddleboarding. A milk dispensing machine is being installed in a corner behind a wall and I ask myself, is that really what the world needs right now? Okay, so yeah, a lot of people to thank for this one. Uh, for their thoughts, opinions and recollections, thanks to Diana Burnaby, Nick Simon, economist and comedian Susan Steed, James Greer, author Nicole Kennedy, author and social historian John Borton, Tom Smith and Alice Rooney. For their acting skills and dulcet mouth noises, thank you to Felicia Cleveland-Stevens, Sarah Cameron, improviser extraordinaire Laura Histrova, Roland Lyle, Rowan Shaw, to Liz Bishop for embodying with such dedication the voice of Virginia Woolf, and to Alex Bradbury, Ricardo Weber and Matthias Molnar for their Teutonic tones. To Rowan Bishop, Jack Gibbon and Jess Ackerman at Bricks Bristol, and by extension, Arts Council England. 
and a special shout out to the Snowden Trust, whose generosity allowed me the time and space to develop a lot of the ideas that then went on to feed into this podcast, and who continue to do great work to allow disabled students to access higher education. And finally, to artists Joe Stockham, Finley Taylor, Bob Matthews, Meg Raheim, Harold Afay, Helen Kamuk, and Mark Titchener, whose support at various points over the last two and a bit years has enabled me to get to, well, to here. If you've got a few minutes, please read the blog that accompanies this podcast for a bit more discussion on the themes within it and a bit more background about those involved. Thanks very much for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Bricks. Bricks brings together the people of Bristol through collaborative art projects, public rum producing, community-led co-design and securing the spaces our communities need to thrive. On our site, you'll also find a blog post with links and images related to the subjects covered in this episode and profiles of all our artists and projects. So go check it out at bricksbristol.org. As a new independent charity, we rely on the support of people like you so that we can support our communities. If you can, please consider supporting our work through donating the price of a sandwich, buying a tote bag or purchasing an artwork from our online shop. Big thanks to Arts Council England and National Lottery Players for funding this episode as part of the BRICS Artist Programme.